Well, that was certainly short and sweet. Bless their hearts. I wonder what other live art tropes we'll see worked in among the 33 summer sports of this Olympic Games. the Olympics, my collaborators and I have created both an installation and a performance. So the installation takes over the gallery and turns it into this entire sort of Olympic village where all of the sporting arenas are superimposed on top of each other and all of the sort of infrastructure is there, but all of it has been very clearly handmade by us. We're sort of playing the role of both athlete, coach, commentator, sometimes spectator, sometimes sometimes something entirely different. And yeah, it's a really sort of intense and rapid fire journey through the, the spectacle of the Olympics, including opening and closing ceremony. And we really wanted to take on this question of why should we abolish the Olympics? What are the Olympics in the first place? So I think it's one of those phenomenons where We've all grown up with it, it's completely normal, it's a huge entrenched part of our culture, but once you look at it, there's nothing really like it, and it's pretty weird. And we found that the more we dug into it and the more we learned about the dissent against the Olympics, which was primarily supported by the resources that are being put out there by No Olympics LA, which is like a coalition of, of protest movements that are doing a really great job with trying to tackle the forthcoming LA Olympics. Once we started to dig into that, we just kept finding more and more and more and getting more and more caught up in all of the very legitimate arguments against it that span small to large scale social concerns. That was Lauren Cronemeyer, artist and co-creator of Abolish the Olympics, which was presented at CAT in June and July of this year. In this episode, we're asking questions like, are the arts competitive? Is there an equivalent event for the arts, like the Olympics is to sport? What do art prizes do for artists? And are they important? This is What Are You Looking At? And I'm Pip Stafford. My name is Lauren Cronemeyer, and I'm a collaborator in the team Pony Express. My other show-running collaborator is Ian Sinclair. I suppose like a lot of artists, I certainly didn't grow up a sporty person was more introverted and keen on being alone and playing with my crayons. <laughs> that being said, I these days enjoy using my body a lot and I've learned a few new sports in pursuit of certain art projects. The relationship between art and sport in general, I mean, they're both fantastic and important forms of cultural expression. They're both ever-changing, but I think it's easy to see where sport gets a certain cultural privileges, especially in a place like Australia or the United States where I'm from, that art doesn't receive in terms of what it's allowed to do and how much it's allowed to cost. It seems like art and sport are often pitted against each other as dichotomies. With art on one end of the scale, often maligned for being a waste of taxpayers' hard-earned money, and sport being lauded for its community appeal and importance. 
Right now, as we see the wholesome images coming out of the Tokyo Olympics, which has gone ahead in the midst of a global pandemic, artists have lost income and support as exhibitions, gigs and festivals cancel, reschedule and cancel again. I have a view about Australia. I think, I'm sorry to say that I think we're a country that prize physical achievement and courage over intellectual achievement and courage. And I think that comes out in our sports madness and in our ridiculous willingness to glorify violence and war, that perhaps this is a big assertion, there's something left over from the colonial experience that has led us to privilege the physical over the intellectual and the creative. But in the end, one artist's work, even within a limited field, is completely different from another's and competition isn't the best model for discrimination. It certainly isn't. My name is Julie Ewington. I'm a writer, a curator and a broadcaster sometimes and I'm based in Sydney. I'm on Gadigal Country. The place where I am is called Dirawan, known in English as Potts Point. Artists can be competitive, but art itself is radically non-competitive because, as I understand it, competition presupposes stated goals and measurable, measurable outcomes against those goals. The person who runs fastest, furthest or jumps highest is the one who wins. Now, with art, I think it's not just a matter of apples and pears, if you're considering one artist's work against another, but, you know, apples and banana passion fruits. The things are simply not comparable, even within the same genre like, or the same field, let's say ceramics. How can you compare this person and that kind of work with the, with the goals and achievements of that kind of work? They are literally incomparable. It's probably true that in some forms of of activity, you could say this is better painted and that is the more complete pot. But by and large, I say that the projects are incommensurable. That doesn't mean that some aren't better than others, but, but competition is a very rough and ready guide. In Australia, we really have one high profile art prize that is publicised and commented on widely on a mainstream media level, and that's the Archibald Prize. It has a history of controversial decisions, court cases, and the artist John Olsen usually has something to say about whomever wins. It's the one day of the year when the artist becomes the rock star. The Archibald Prize for Portraiture, worth 500 pounds, was this year awarded to this picture, painted by William Dobell. The award met a storm of criticism. Sydney artist Tim Storia has won this year's Archibald Prize. We were talking about controversy earlier on. This is a portrait prize for a, a painting without a face. It was first awarded in 1921, and it wasn't until 2020 that an Aboriginal artist won the prize. Vincent Namatjira with his portrait of footballer and activist Adam Goods. What an honour it is to be the first Indigenous winner of the Archibald Prize. It only took 99 years 
My name is Daniel Meadie Cunningham. I'm the Director of Programs at Carriageworks in Sydney, and I'm a writer, curator, and artist. I think using maybe the Archibald Prize as an example there, certainly that is a very populist prize, and probably for a lot of audiences, the only time they go to an art gallery at once a year opportunity to look at some famous people who've been painted for the Archibald. I guess there's a lot of anticipation and, and a lot of publicity around the Archibald Prize for that reason. I think sometimes the winning work is sometimes a little bit of a barometer of the times in terms of what people are thinking or it might just even be about the politics of, of the time you know the because uh, it's trustee run as well that you might think oh yeah it was you know it's obviously long overdue that Aboriginal artist hasn't won you know when Vincent Amateur won last year it's obviously quite notable for that reason and that might have changed some public sentiment around around the Aboriginal art you know especially for a lot of general audience who might not understand uh, or be as exposed to contemporary Aboriginal painting. Those of us who've worked with mainstream press are, are familiar with work being criticised on a Saturday and then reconsidered, you know, in its positive light on a Monday because the editors decided that they'll get a second, a second, a second day sales out of whatever it is, you know. And we have to really discriminate. In Australia, there's no doubt that our our sports madness maybe spills over to our interest in the arts, or at any rate. We've got some prizes that have lasted for a very long time. And, well, the Archibald is a national sport, let's face it. That's the, that's the one prize that is a national sport. And I, I believe that there are even possibly you can lay bets on who's going to win. I'm, I, I profoundly hope so. That would be quite a good thing. But let's distinguish media, media hubbub from genuine controversy about the nature of competition. It is kind of like the Olympics, I suppose, in that way where it's recognisable, there's a brand... The artists that participate are affiliated with that brand and you know it's a it's a lane in the art sector that a lot of artists choose to participate in and with great reason art prizes do focus public attention on artists work contemporary artists work and that has a very beneficial effect even with something like the archibald because all sorts of folk go to see the archibald in sydney who would never go to see anything else for the rest of the year. And that prize in recent years has had a very particular function. I call it the Australian story effect, which is to say there's consideration of achievement by Australian citizens, uh, a consideration of narratives and ideas coming out of Australian experience. And that that is uh, entirely beneficial because as a post-colonised country, we really need to take ourselves seriously and to recognise and to celebrate what Australians in the field of arts letters, whatever, are doing. And that's that's very positive. I am really excited by alternative forms of prize that I see emerging. For example, AFID's No Contest that they ran last year. There's other alternatives that I've seen. And I've also seen, you know, where all of the artists in a prize will decide to collectivise and reject the ethos of the prize. And I think that all of those approaches that kind of shake up the model where the artists then get to take their autonomy back from the decision makers are the most exciting thing going on in that space at the moment. One of the better known art prizes in the world, the Turner Prize in the UK, was reconfigured by the shortlisted artists in 2019, who requested to be awarded the prize as a group, splitting the kudos and the prize money. As critic Harry Thorne noted in his 2019 article, 
have art prizes had their day for Apollo magazine. While it is important for artists to push at institutions, it's far easier for artists who already have money and cultural capital to make gestures towards collectivism. As for poorer, perhaps less connected artists, the funds of an art prize may mean the difference between paying the rent or not. There is a um, one prize in particular which sort of connects to thinking, and that is the Basil Sellers Prize for Art and Sport, which used to be run through the University of Melbourne's Art Museum and the Ian Potter. And I was a judge for that in 2010, and there's a very particular story attached to it. It was a pretty hunking prize. It was $100,000, and it was won that year by two artists from Perth, Taryn Gill and Pilar Matta-Dupont, and they had a terrific video work. But the kicker was that I got a moment to speak to the wonderful Basil Sellers who endowed the prize and say to him what a wonderful thing it was that the artists would have $100,000 between them to sustain their practice. And I said, you know, Basil, by my reckoning, each of them will be able to sustain themselves for two years with this prize that you have been able to endow. And I could see that he was startled and I intended him to be so because $25,000 a year is a very small amount of money for some people, but a very large amount of money to artists. So definitely if you win a prize, it is like winning the golden ring. It, and it gives artists the opportunity to go on working. It definitely sustains confidence. It is a public endorsement from uh, sometimes from colleagues, sometimes out of the sky. And that kind of support is really needed to sustain experimental contemporary art in Australia. If it comes through prizes, it's a flawed mechanism, but I'm glad it comes anyway. I always love seeing, you know, we love it when artists that are emerging or that are experimenting get compensation and I love seeing what that can do to an artist. I remember talking to my friend, I have a friend who won a very financially generous prize for a performance work that they did and I remember speaking to her and going, oh my god, how did it feel, how exciting, and she said that the one thing that she felt afterwards was that, you know what, I'm going to take an Uber home instead of the bus. Um, so, you know, it really does make a difference. Yeah, but at the same time, wouldn't it be nice if we weren't all driven by such a, you know, capitalist economic imperative to allow ourselves to have creative expression as a culture? I don't know if prizes are capable of subverting that, at least as they exist in their dominant form. There was one prize back in the day, a sculpture prize in Melbourne, which was had one very amusing result. I think it must have been about 1970 or 1972. All the artists were paid $2,000 for a Marquette for this sculpture prize. And that was then a very considerable amount of money. I heard that it led to a rash of motorbikes because 2,000 bucks was about what you could pay for a really decent motorbike at that time. competitions for art exist as their own species in the arts ecology of Australia. There's many different types of prizes, from those aimed at more contemporary experimental practice to prizes and fellowships for curating, many, many prizes aimed at landscape art, including a number of prizes here in Tasmania. For example, the Hadley's Art Prize and the John Glover Prize. 
And of course, there's the more popular surprises, such as the Archibald, which we've talked about earlier. But what's the ultimate role of art prizes in this country? Are they important to art practice? I mean, prizes really just at the end of the day. I think, you know, opportunities for artists to get, get you know, get a buck. I guess it's kind of worth noting there too that inquisitive art prizes are interesting as well because you know then it does an artist out in terms of raising their profile and enhancing the you know the collections list on their CV if if the work ends up going into a really good public collection as a result of the prize. Often the prizes really trying to establish a kind of I guess legacy around the people who donate the money <laughs> or the you know the institution that has kind of concocted the prize in the first place so the role is often and maybe one we don't think about in, in you know inherently is that the role of the prize is often just the is really about the role of the institution or the, the philanthropists behind it and the, the kind of legacy they want to leave but the role that prizes have I mean look I think it's just really quite straightforward that that it's really just part of that kind of the economic infrastructure of the art world where I think that there are limited options, limited um, funding opportunities, you know, a lot of artists and I guess everyone's swashbuckling for, you know, for a piece of that pie and um, prizes, you know, I guess a very much part of that. And there's so many art prizes. I, you know, sometimes it blows me away to think that, oh, here's another one. There's a lot of regional gallery prizes and a lot of different painting prizes. And some of them are very specific. They might be generationally targeted around artists under a certain age or, or, <laughs> or maybe about a, a medium. You know, if this is a painting prize, this is a portraiture prize, this is a prize for Aboriginal art, this is a prize for this, this is a prize for that. So there are quite a lot of prizes and probably the saturation of prizes out there is, is a little bit too much. But, you know, I think ultimately if it helps, helps an artist out, I'm all for that. Of course, not all artists enter prizes. Either their work does not fit within the often conservative prize model or they make works that can't hang on walls or be displayed on plinths. Or perhaps they can't afford the entry fees. Or maybe they're not wanting to make work for free. Though peer-assessed arts funding also has its issues, of course. An artist may at least apply for money to develop a project speculatively. Art prizes usually have a finished work in mind, like the Olympics athlete who has done all the hard work and sweating in private, taking their moment on the podium. The art prize winner is also expected to have the work ready to win. I think a peer assessment panel is quite different from a judge. Oh, not all funding is peer assessed, I suppose, but in peer assessed models, there's a difference between that and a judge because, you know, the criteria of what it takes to receive the funding is very public. I think that, you know, a lot of our projects have benefited from public funding but we approach that with a lot of, we don't, we certainly don't hold back or represent our work strategically necessarily. We always are talking about our work in terms that are really imaginative and really true to whatever the intent of the project is. So yeah, I don't, I think that, I don't know what it is that uh, necessarily leads to success. I've been on a few peer assessment panels. Is it like a prize? I think that it's similar in some ways, and it certainly is similar in that not everyone gets to receive it. And, you know, you'll never know what the projects 
that didn't receive support and therefore can't go forward had to offer the world, which is terribly unfortunate. I mean, I think like prizes, I think that it's certainly worth constantly evaluating and reevaluating how they serve artists in the community and how they can be improved upon to serve a wider range of artists and to promote a more sustainable arts ecology in terms of people actually being able to do the work of creating art over the long term. This is What Are You Looking At, a podcast produced by me, Pip Stafford, and Lisa Campbell-Smith for Contemporary Art Tasmania. For this episode, we thank Julie Ewington, Lauren Cronemeyer, and Daniel Moody Cunningham for their thoughts and words. Additional audio for this episode is from Abolish the Olympics by Pony Express. More information about What Are You Looking At can be found on our website www.contemporaryarttasmania.org